0: Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro,
1: the show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So, without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away.
2: Hey, thank you, Joe. Hello, everyone, and thank you for coming back and joining me again today on Next on the Tee. We are brought to you by the great folks over at the French Lick Resort. There isn't a better place to stay and play anywhere on the planet than the French Lick Resort. You'll see why I say that when you check them out online at FrenchLick.com. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have the extreme pleasure of having two of my favorite all-time guests joining me here on Next on the Tee, and that's Champions tour player Bob Friend Jr. in the voice of golf, Pierre Kessler. I'll get uh, Bob's take on his alma mater, LSU, and their big come-from-behind win earlier this week. Plus, uh, we'll see what's on tap for him this season on the Champions Tour and his memories of being paired with Tiger Woods at Tiger's very first event back at the 1992 Nissan LA Open. We'll hear also what's going on at his His country club, Pikewood National, and uh, he's a member over at Oakmont. So, you know, the, uh, the Open's at Oakmont this year. So we'll get some thoughts on that from Bob as well when he joins me here in just a few minutes. Later this half hour, I'll talk with Peter Kessler about some of the great interviews that he's done with legends like Tommy Bolt and, and Greg Norman as well. Plus, I'll get him to reflect back on the reaction that he received from fans when he was at the 2002 Masters shortly after he left the Golf Channel. I think that's a, an amazing story for uh, what Peter, the reception that Peter got there. So, he'll share some of that. And we'll talk a whole lot more when Peter joins me, like I say, here a little bit later in this half hour. So it's going to be a great show. I am so thankful that you've made the choice to listen to Next on the Tea and share uh, the next hour with me. But let's start the show right by helping you start your mornings off right, and that's go check out our friends over at Aroma Ridge because they offer an array of the finest mountain-grown gourmet coffees that you're going to find anywhere. You can find them online at aromaridge.com. They're secret, hand-selected, from a, you know, hand-selected beans from a variety of coffee-producing countries from around the world. They roast those beans to perfection by their very own Roastmaster. Those coffees are roasted specifically for you. And I mean that specifically for you because you choose which ones you want. And if you like a little flavor in your coffee, well, they have almost any flavor that you can imagine. Plus, you can sort of mix and match flavors to create one of your very own. I'm currently drinking the Wicked Jack Tavern Butter Rum Coffee, which is fantastic. And not only are their coffees great, folks, but they're fantastic people as well. You're not going to find a better tasting coffee or better, a better group of people anywhere on the planet than at Aroma Ridge. Try, try all of their great products. Check them out online, aromaridge.com. Next on the tea is brought to you today by our friends over at the French Lick Resort in French Lick, Indiana. Folks, you want to talk about a spectacular resort to both play golf and to just sit back and relax and enjoy yourself? Well, like I say, you're not going to find a better place anywhere on the planet than the French Lick Resort. Go to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself. In the meantime, let's hear a word from our friends
3: over there.
0: Now's the time to plan that golf getaway you've been dreaming about at French Lick Resort. We have new Golf Academy packages for 2016, guaranteed to take your game to the next level. Try our one-day quick-fix academy for golf emergencies. For more in-depth learning, try the Game Changer, designed to make you a better player. Our staff professionals are ready to work with you at French Lick Resort. Did you know there's only one place in the country that you can play courses designed by two members of the World Golf Hall of Fame on the same property? The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort make us an ultimate golf destination for 2016. Check out the Ultimate Golf Package, the Hall of Fame Package, and other great offerings at FrenchLick.com. Let 2016 be that year you finally take your dream golf getaway at French Lick Resort. Play the courses champions play.
2: Folks, it's spectacular. My family and I had the uh, had the opportunity to go spend some time up there last summer, and they're already asking me when we're going to be going back. The French Lick Resort needs to be on your list of places to stay and play. And, oh, by the way, my friends, they have a casino right there on the property as well. For more information and to book your stay, go to FrenchLick.com. Every week here on Next on the T, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women that are serving in every branch of our military. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families make to protect the freedoms and our liberties that we get to share. We also want to thank our veterans and all that you and your families did for us over the years. It's through the strength of our military personnel that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to have next on the be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. network.org. also want to remind our veterans listening in out there, be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. It's a wonderful site with news and articles and a wealth of information specifically geared towards our veterans. I'm sure you're going to find it both interesting and beneficial to have on your regular reading list. Again, check it out, globalvoiceforveterans.org. All right, now making his sixth appearance with me on the French Liquor Resort guest line is one of my favorite all-time guests, and that's Bob Friend, Jr. Let me remind you a little bit about Bob's background. He's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. played his college golf at LSU, where he, David Toms, and the rest of their LSU teammates won the 1986 SEC Championship. Bob won the Pennsylvania State Championship in back-to-back years in 1984 and 85, and he turned pro in 1987. Played on the Nationwide PGA and Champions Tour since 1990. He had five top ten finishes his rookie year on what's now the Nationwide Tour, including a second-place finish at the El Paso Open. He got his first win at the 1991 Fort Wayne Open. He had five top ten finishes in 1994 and three more in '97. In all, he's finished in the top ten 27 times and counting. Baseball fans, you're going to remember his father, who played in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966 with my hometown, Pittsburgh Pirates was a key to their 1960 World Championship team that beat the Yankees on Bill Mazeroski's home run in the bottom of the ninth in Game 7. Bob is also the Director of Operations at Pikewood National Golf Club in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is one of the most beautiful golf courses on the planet. And that's no exaggeration, my friends. Please, go check it out online at pikewoodnational.com. They're also perennially in the top 100 golf courses anywhere in the world, ranked by Golf Digest. Last August Bob Bob finished tied for 8th at the Dick Sporting Goods Open finishing -9 after rounds of 68, 70 and 69 and I am thrilled that he is back with me and next on the tee again this morning. Good morning Bob, how are you my friend?
1: Hey, I'm doing Chris. I'm doing great Chris. Again, you're always the uh, the most well-prepared radio host in radio. Uh, <laughs> you've got you know more about me than I do.
2: I appreciate you saying that. I try to, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, our, our listeners listening and listening in, you know, know everything that they can about you as you know, come on the show because you've had a, an, an amazing career and the things that you've been able to achieve, you know, in the course of your time playing the game. But, you know, Bob, I, I really you know, want to start off this morning talking, getting, you know, getting an update on your father. How's your dad doing?
1: He's doing great. He's actually, he's 85 years old and uh, he's in fantastic shape physically and mentally uh he's been married to my mom now for uh a little over 58 years and uh he's very active in the Pittsburgh Part Alumni Association he's the treasurer for the alumni association it's a it's a fantastic group then they a uh, group of guys and they they basically go out there and they raise a lot of money for charities their their Pittsburgh alumni golf tournament uh, held every year in July at South Hills Country Club each year for the last 29 years has raised over 100,000 dollars just each each day uh, for wow. the last 29 years. They've raised a lot of money for charities on that on that one-day event. They've got a lot of support from the Pittsburgh and the local communities, and that really comes from the fact that it's really nothing but a great bunch of guys uh, from top to bottom throughout the Pittsburgh Pirate Organization. So you've got guys there from the 60 World Series team and the 71 World Series team and 79 World Series team and all the other teams in between. So uh, he's very active in that. He plays a lot of golf. He's you know, Again, we've been long-time members at Oakmont, so um, it's 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 fantastic being at the age of 52 and still having both my parents uh, not still with me, not just still with me, but also with me and and lucid and active and a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, God bless them. And and Bob, speaking of speaking of 79, what, I got what are your thoughts? Pirates bringing back the 1979, the gold shirts, the black pants, the pill top hats for their Sunday home games. It doesn't get any better than that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, the Pirates, just like a lot of teams in baseball, have had uh, you know they've got they've they've had the various uniforms going throughout the year. I think the White Sox were probably the ugliest uh, in history back in the mid '70s, late '70s. Uh, but the Pirates, you know, they've got a wonderful history. It's the third oldest team in the game of baseball, and uh, you know they've won five World Series championships. And you know they're always trying to do something from a marketing standpoint to kind of just change the look a little bit. So. Uh, again, that was uh, you know 37 years ago this year uh, that they won that World Series, and uh, it's kind of hard to believe that they haven't won one since. But they've got a good product on the field now, uh, with McCutcheon being the core of that team, and uh, hopefully they're going to they're going to contend again this year for playoff opportunities.
2: Right, and Bob, before we get into you know your game and and the upcoming season for you, I always like to kind of get your thoughts on your alma mater LSU. Last week, your boys stormed back from a a five-shot final round deficit to Arizona State and went on to win by amazing 19 strokes at the prestige at, at PGA West. They were led by freshman uh, Jason uh, Jinson, who fired a final round 64. Wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, uh, on how your alma mater is doing. I thought they you know, amazing to me, defending national champions, and boy, they sure didn't get much love in the early season rankings. Ranked 23rd currently, 25, 25th before this past week.
1: Well, they lost, they lost a couple of players from the core, but you've got uh, you know uh, Zach Wright, Brandon Pierce and Eric Ricard. They are all you know returning from that national championship team, and they've really added some fantastic uh, freshmen, as you said, Nathan Johnson, who ended up shooting 64 the last round there. But their last, their last round scores there at that tournament out there at P.J. West were 67, 71, 67, 67, 64. So they actually threw out. They actually threw out a 71 the last round, and just you said they just stormed through it. They won the team championship, and Zach Wright, the, uh, the All American senior, was also the uh, the low medalist. So, Chuck Winstead, you know we had a uh, we had a great team when I was there in the in the early and mid 80s with uh, myself and David Tom's and Rob McNamara, who's now at uh, Farmington Country Club and uh, in, Char- in Charlottesville, Virginia, and you had uh, Emlyn Aubrey, who ended up playing on the PGA Tour for eight years. Um, and we ended up winning the Southeastern Conference in 86, and then they really, they won another one in, I believe, in 89, uh, with Greg Lesher on that team and David Toms on that team, and then they really kind of went into a a little bit of a spiral. They went through a number of coaching changes, none of them seemed to work, and then they brought Chuck Winstead in, who played for LSU in the early 90s, and Chuck is a tremendous teacher. Uh, they have an unbelievable world-class facility there in Baton Rouge at the University Club, it's a uh, Jim Leip, David Toms golf course. Jim Leip was an LSU grad, LSU alum, and he uh, he was actually on the Nicholas design team. And so Jim Leip, along with David Toms, have really beefed up that golf course, plays at about 7,800 yards long, obviously, at, at sea level. And uh, the facility, the range is, you know, 350, 375 yards long, and they've got a facility in the, in the, at the far end for the golf for the men's and the women's teams, and uh, it's just an absolute recruiting magnet. And what Chuck Winstead has done, along with the Tiger Athletic Foundation, have done unbelievable things for LSU. And they've put, you know, obviously the national championship this past year, and they're off to another great start this spring. So I look for some great things from this team. And, again, Chuck, is uh, my hat's off to him. He brought in the number one Rolex junior player of the year from Shreveport this coming year. And so, uh, again, they're, they're just basically looks like the football team where they're just, uh, they're just basically reloading.
2: And, Bob, before we take a, a look forward to your season this year, I want to take a, a look back at some of the things that you've done in your career, going back all the way, really, to your first victory, which was you know, on the then-Ben Hogan Tour, now the Nationwide Tour, the Fort Wayne Open, which was played at uh, Orchard Ridge Country Club, which was also the site of the very first LPGA event back in 1955. Take us through you know, your range of emotions, Bob, as you were you know, getting ready to win your first tournament and pulling off that victory.
1: Well it was uh it was a good, it was a very interesting week. I had actually played the Pro Am with the um uh with the with the current uh Notre Dame Athletic Director. I think his name was Dick Dick Rosenthal or Dick Rosenberg. It's been it's a while ago. So, you know, twenty five years, I'm fifty two I've just had <laughs> a senior moment. But he was the uh he was the actual A D at Notre Dame and on that uh we played that Pro Am at that time there were three round tournaments. We played that pro am on Thursday and I actually shot sixty four on my own ball that week, and then uh you know obviously it was obviously you know shoot sixty four you're playing pretty well, you're hitting the ball well, and went out the first round and shot seventy one which was even par and just I was way back. It was not the most difficult of golf courses back in those days. a lot of the Ben Hogan Tour golf courses they were nice golf courses, but I wouldn't say that they were championship golf courses in terms of the length, so you got to be really good with your wedges and drive the ball accurately. And then the next round, I shot 66 and kind of moved myself up a little bit into contention. And then the last day, ended up shooting 64 again. So really the four rounds, I shot 64, 71, 66, 64. And uh, I actually got into a playoff with Dennis Trixler from California, and a gentleman by the name of Jerry Anderson uh, from Canada. Jerry was actually just inducted into the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame, I think, last week. But Jerry and myself and Dennis Trixler went into a four-hole playoff, and I won it on the fourth extra hole. I uh, hit a, a wedge from about 90 yards, hit it in there about a foot and a half, and won the tournament. At that time, the, the first place was twenty thousand dollars, and uh, you know you get the big paper check. And uh, you know at that time it was like the most money that I had ever won in my uh, early career there. And it really, it, it, what it did was it gave me the confidence that I could compete. And so later that fall. I ended up uh, qualifying for the PGA Tour and got my PGA Tour card that December at the Greenleaf Resort, and um, it was a very easy Q School for me, and uh, just uh, I really breezed through it. I think I I think I probably averaged about 15 greens hit each day, and I really didn't puddle that well. Wow! Ended up finishing tied for tied for 18th there at Q School, and uh, you know I played my first full year on the PGA Tour the, the following season, but that victory. Uh, in Fort Wayne meant an awful lot in terms of building confidence. As Jack Nicholas says, winning breeds winning. And what the winning does and what being in contention time and time again does, it basically it, it builds up your confidence and your strong belief in yourself. And, uh, you know, there's many seminal moments in a, in a player's career. I know that for me, what really got, made me convinced that I could compete uh, at the next level was in my, my last year of amateur golf in 1986, I won the Northeast Amateur by eight shots. I won the Monroe Invitational Match Play Tournament, which ended up having a lot of Walker Cuppers on it. And I also won the Mid-Atlantic Amateur that year and uh, you know played my fourth consecutive U.S. Amateur. So that right there, that summer, kind of gave me the idea that I could compete at the next level. And then number of years later, you sit out there and you, you play and you realize, man, these guys are really good. And uh, yeah. you go out there and you play and you compete. And then for me, again, the next threshold was – Again, winning in nineteen ninety one on the on the Ben Hogan tour at the time.
2: And Bob, something you know, folks may not know is you were paired with Tiger Woods at his very first PGA Tour event, the nineteen ninety two Nissan LA Open. You both shot an opening round seventy two and then you beat him by four strokes in the second round. You shot seventy one, he shot seventy five. What was it like being paired paired with him at that event?
1: Well, you know, it's one of those things where, again, my rookie year—that uh, was really, I think, uh, thinking back now, probably only my, my my third tournament, second or third tournament of the year. The first, I never, the first one was Pebble Beach. Um, but I got to L.A. and I was in the tournament, and uh, they did, hadn't reshuffled any numbers yet, so my number was very, very good. And so they reshuffled the numbers after the West Coast, and um, I had gotten to L.A. and uh, played my practice round on Monday. And Tuesday, and then Tuesday afternoon around one o'clock, they come out with the tee times. And being a rookie on the PGA Tour, you're always going to be in that C group, which is the, uh, the the back of the bus, so to speak. Where you always either, you know, they've got the A the A group uh, plays in the middle of the field, the B group, which is the guys that have not won, they play at the at the front of the bus, and the the rookies, they all play at the back of the bus. And you're always bringing in pins at the end of the day. And uh, so I got in around one o'clock after playing a practice run early in the morning and looked at the sheet. So I was paired with Dickie Thompson, who's a guy from Georgia, another journeyman professional, such as myself, and Tiger Woods. And, you know, we knew that, you know, there was a lot of buzz there that, you know, this kid was unbelievable. He's the reigning U.S. Junior Amateur Champion. He's got an unbelievable golf swing, unbelievable game. He's going to be a great – and we all heard, you know, all his comments from his father. And as a tour player, like, yeah, yeah, whatever – and you know, I knew from the very beginning because he was from Southern California. I knew that the day was going to be a zoo, and it was a zoo. The first round, especially, because it, he attracted so many photographers and media personnel. There's absolutely no golf IQ whatsoever, and they were standing willy nilly taking photographs while we were playing. And it was just it was it required an awful lot of patience that first day. And uh, But I can tell you, you know, after playing with him, what stuck out with me, he, look, he was a skinny kid. He's about 5'10", probably about 145 pounds at the time. So he hit the ball as far as I did. You know, he was long for a you know, 16-year-old kid hitting it out through touring professionals. Uh, but what, what really um, impressed me was his moxie, his confidence, his quiet confidence, and his self-assuredness. Um he did he was wonderful to play with because you know you know, as a young kid, you never know what they 're going to be doing. He knew exactly where to stand all the time. He never stepped in anybody 's through lines. He was extraordinarily polite, very quiet as he always was when he when he competes even to this day but uh you know you you sat there and you got done playing at the time he didn 't think that it was something where you know i 'm going to be an answer to a trivial pursuit question uh at the time you just thought you know here 's a kid. Here's a kid that uh, you know is 16 years old, and he had the moxie, the confidence, and the self-assuredness of what I would consider a four-time first-team senior, four-time first-team all-American senior in college. I mean, he was that mentally tough and mentally mature at the age of 16. And you know, a lot of people, I you know, got you know the microphone stuck in my face. You know, what do you think? What do you think? And I think you know, obviously, I thought you know, what well, do you think he's going to have a great future? And and you know, you never know. There's you know, we've all seen the so-called sure things throughout our careers. You know, the junior golfers that were, you know, number one in the world and this, that, and the other. And by the time they finished their second year in college, they, you know, they have lost interest in the game or they're burned out. And, you know, by the time they're done with college, they don't even get into professional golf. So, uh, but he was a very, he was a very special kid. And obviously he's turned out to be a very, very special player in the history of the game.
2: Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and, Bob, let's stick, let's stick in the decade of the 90s, and you and I were talking off air. 1999, you, you had the opportunity to play at the TPC Scottsdale. You're going to have an opportunity to go back out there. Just curious to get your thoughts on, on what it's like to play at that, you know, at the stadium course, particularly when, uh, during tournament time on 16. What's that, what's that feel like when you're walking in there, and now you're suddenly, you know, it's like you're in the middle of a baseball stadium or a football stadium trying to play a golf shot?
1: It is, I tell you what, number one, it's a blast. Uh, Phoenix is a fantastic event. They get great support from the community this year. I think the numbers, they had like 625,000 people out there for the week, which is unbelievable. And I know that when we were out there playing there, I know that they were north of 400, 450,000 spectators for the entire week. And uh, they get tremendous support. They donate a tremendous amount of money to their charities each and every year. It's a great, great event run by the Thunderbirds um but when you get out there and you know you're you're playing and you know you're kind of building up to it especially uh at that time I was in that that so-called B category where I had you know I had you know kept my card and I was top 125 so I was going off early in the morning you know one of the first wave groups um and you kind of you walk from the 15th green which is a par 5 and you walk through that tunnel when you get out there the whole gallery just kind of opens up in front of you and the the, the stands are packed from, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning on. And you get out there, and as soon as you come out there, you know, they're, they're there, and they might be chanting or whatever, and it's like, oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, it's very, very loud. You just got the group on the green, and then when, as soon as they leave the green, then the noise starts to build to a crescendo. You're with your caddy getting your figure. You know, we've got 164 yards. I think it's an 8-iron, this, that, and the other. And the the whole din is going on as you're doing this. And as soon as you start your routine – it starts to get a little bit more quiet. And then when you step into the ball and you address the ball, it's dead quiet. And, you know, you're just thinking, I hope I don't shank this. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're one of the best players in the world, and you're just thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so embarrassing. Just hit it on the club face. And fortunately for me, the four days that I played, um, I didn't make an idiot out of myself. I actually hit the ball on the green all four days. Uh, didn't get booed. But as, soon as you as soon as the club ball makes contact with the club face they just they just explode into a, round, a loud roar and if the shot is terrible they will boo you if the shot is great you know they'll sit there and cheer it's a fantastic atmosphere the only thing that ever came close to that was uh at greensboro when we used to play it in the spring at old forest oaks in greensboro their 17th hole there was a par 3 similar a little bit longer about 215 220 yards but they used the same thing. The people used to come out there in the lawn chairs, and it got, it got loud, and it got, they got a little bit uh, into the adult beverages there as the day went on. So that was relatively <laughs> similar. But the, the experience at, uh, at TPC Stadium, the 16th hole, is like nothing else in golf. It's really amazing. It's a lot of fun.
2: And, Bob, last year you, you played five events on the, on the Champions Tour. Like I said in the intro, you tied for eighth at the, at the Dick Sporting Goods Open in, in late August. You had three great rounds, 68, 70, 69. You shot a final round, 65, at the Toshiba Classic in November. What's, how, you, know, you talked about confidence earlier, and now you're getting ready to launch into the 2016 season. How do you feel about the state of your game, and that, is that something you're building off of some momentum that you had towards the end of last season?
1: Well, you know, no question. I mean, it's one of those things. You know, as a as a as a golfer, you've got to have. I think that somebody, I can't remember who it was, but the writer said that golfers are are um, eternal optimists. And you really you have to be an optimist to play this game because it is so damn hard. And so you know, you sit there and you try to, as a, as a tour player, you don't try to get down on yourself. You try to be positive about everything. You try to think about how great you're putting. Uh, how great you're hitting it, this, that, and the other. You're looking for trends, and you try to be kind to yourself. You know, I always tell uh, students, I tell friends, I tell my children, all three of them play, that you have to talk to yourself like you're caddying for yourself. And so, you know, a lot of times you sit there and you hear these guys talking badly to themselves. It's like, well, if he was caddying for them, he'd be fired on the spot. So you always have to be positive. You know, when I take a look at what I've accomplished last year – Again, I'm very fortunate because i again as you said i'm i'm p g a professional here at Pikewood National Golf Club in Morgantown. The owner of the club is the last two years and this this is my third year uh has permitted me to go out and Monday qualify, and he supports that and so when I go out and I qualify, should I qualify? I play for the week, and if I don't, then I come back and and go to work just as all other p g a professionals across the country um but with regard to what I did at the Dix, you know, I got a sponsors exemption in there. And uh, Ed Stack, the CEO and chairman of Dick Sporting Goods, is a fellow Oakmont member, and we both serve on the board together. Ed is actually the president of Oakmont Country Club. And, uh, you know, he was very fortunate. Uh, very fortunately, he gave me a sponsor exemption last year. When you get an exemption, you know, the last thing you want to do is, is go out there and, and have a poor performance. So it was very important to me that I went out there and that I played real well uh, at the Dicks. And the week before, I went to work with my teacher, Dr. Jim Studdy. He was out in uh, Chicago at Conway Farms, and we kind of stumbled on a little, oh, I guess you could say a little swing key, which is in the golf swing, the sequence of events on the backswing is your hands, arms, shoulders, and hips, and the sequence on the downswing is just the opposite, hips, shoulders, arms, and hands. And so what we worked on in Chicago was the idea of getting that club swinging away from the golf ball before my shoulders ever started turning. And so for me, the swing key for me is out of the corner of my eye when that club starts to swing, I try to make sure that I can see the club head get past my right toe in my backswing before my shoulders ever start to rotate. So my shoulders are turning later in the backswing, which produces more coil and eliminates any lift in the backswing motion. And so we, we kind of stumbled on that. And then I'm instant, instantaneously at Conway Farms started hitting the ball very, very well. And then I got to, uh, I got to uh, you know, Endicott up there. We used to play the BC Open. We played the Dick Sporting Goods Open. And all through my practice rounds, you know, you get as, a, as a sponsor's exemption, you're doing all the pro-ams and all the parties, which is great. And um, I just I kept continually hitting the ball well. And, and, again, got off to a good start shooting 68 um, the first day and then played played pretty good the second day shooting 70 and then shot, you know, 69 the uh, the last day. with I made a 7-footer at number 17. and I made about a 6-footer at number 18, both to save pars. At the time, I knew that I needed a par of the last two holes, to finish in the top ten, and the top ten normally gets you into the week the following week on the Champions Tour and PGA Tour. But on the Champions Tour, they only take one top ten. And Peter Senior, who I was paired with the first day, uh, Peter Senior shot 65. He beat me by a shot, and he got that top ten spot advancing. But at the time that I knew that I needed to make those putts, I did. And whenever you have to make a putt, as all your listeners know, and as you know, Chris, whenever you get up to a putt and you know you absolutely have to make it. And then you make it. I don't know if there's really anything more gratifying in the game of golf than standing up there and knowing you've got to make one mm-hmm. and you bury it. And uh, so, you know, I did what I did there. And then uh, later in the year I played very well the last run at Toshiba uh, out there in Newport Beach. And, uh, you know, this year so far um, I've played two qualifying opportunities. I missed both of them. I've been, in, you know, been up in the mid-Atlantic where I haven't really been playing a whole lot of golf, but I played well. I shot 70, the first one at the Fountains. I missed by four shots. And then uh, the last one uh, over there in uh, Fort Myers, Florida, I shot 72 in 30-mile-per-hour winds, and um, I missed by two. And it was ironic that uh, I was the last group off at 10.30, and all four guys that actually qualified for the tournament, they all played before 8.30. So they got about two hours where you didn't have any wind, and I had basically played the entire trip uh, in 30-mile-an-hour winds. You know, you're hitting six irons from 130 yards out, which is normally a 175-yard club. So, um, you know, that's it's all part of the draw. And as I said, as uh, you alluded to, actually, I'm going to be headed out to Arizona here on the 6th, and the next qualifier is March 14th. And uh, that's at Oro Valley down there in Tucson, and I'm looking forward to getting it done and getting in a tournament here soon.
2: I'm talking to Bob Friend, Jr. here on Next on the i I've got my next guest, Peter Kessler, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Peter in just a moment. A couple more before we let you go, Bob. I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, this year's U.S. Open. You've talked about it here a little bit, that the, you know, you're a member out there at Oakmont Country Club. So, you know, we've, uh, we've had Eric Johnson, a good friend of yours, who's the director of golf out there on the show a number of times, and uh, Eric likes to talk about how it's, it's no joke that they actually slow the greens down for the U.S. Open from member play. Give me your thoughts on uh, what we can expect to see this year out at Oakmont.
1: Well, I can tell you, first of all, Eric is correct. You know, there's a number of, uh, it's, it's the only golf course that I know in the United States, or re- really anywhere, that on daily play, daily play, Monday through Friday, they double cut and roll the grains, and the grain speeds will be 12 to 13. On the weekends, we triple cut and roll the grains. Every single weekend, triple cut and roll. So you're looking at grain speeds of 14 plus. Um, if the weather is, firm and fast, such as it was in 2007 when Angel Cabrera won with five over par. Um, it is going to be so ridiculously difficult. Um, it's just, it's, there's, you know, I, when I was a I was a player hospitality chairman for the 2007 Open, and I remember on Sunday afternoon Lee Westwood, who at the time was going through kind of a down downsizing, or I should say, in his game. He wasn't playing very well, kind of a down period in his game. He made the cut, but uh, he didn't play very well, and so we were sitting there. We were were, uh, getting caught up. We'd played a few times on the tour back in the 90s and whatnot, and I asked him what he thought about the golf course. He said, well, I said, it's not my favorite golf course. He said, however, it's in my top five. He said, but I will say this. He said, it's it's the ultimate examination. He said, there is absolutely no place to hide, and even the the so-called easy holes, um, if you're off by a foot, uh, it can make you look silly, so it's it's if the it, if it's if it's dry and then fast and firm, it's gonna be a very, very difficult test. Uh you're gonna have green speeds there, you know, they'll usually start at around fifteen in the morning, um, which is a little bit slower than what we have them for in our in our SWAT, what's called the SWAT party, which is in the fall. So, um it is it's a it's a, it's as Lee Torino said many years ago, it's the only golf course he's ever played where you could host an open with one week's notice.
2: Yeah. And you also talked about your home golf club, Pikewood National. Talk, tell our folks, you know, remind our, our folks about Pikewood National, where it is and uh, and what you guys have going on there.
1: Well, Pikewood National was a, is a golf course that we designed ourselves. We opened all 18 holes in 2008. In 2009, we were named the best new private course in America. And in 2013, uh, we've been ranked in the top 100 in the United States, ranked 44th currently in the United States and uh, 74th in the world in the uh, 2014-2015 rankings. Um, The golf course is tremendous. On a clear day, you can see 60 air miles, but the fairways are perfectly flat. It's impeccably maintained. Uh, It's got a fantastic practice facility. It's private. The facility is, you know, 350 yards by 120 yards wide. We've got guest cottages on the property. I I tell a lot of people, and I, I primarily handle the membership sales here, I tell a lot of people that if you were to go back in time and take a look at pine valley in 1920 this is pikewood national golf club it's basically pine valley in its infancy and it's a tremendous project the owners completely committed to it uh we're growing the club each and every year and um it just has an old school traditional type of feel it's walking only no carts. big caddy program and uh our members just absolutely adore it
2: how can our how can our folks that uh, want to take a peek at it how can they find it online
1: they can get online and go to pikewoodnational, one word, P-I-K-E-W-O-O-D, pikewoodnational.com. And the website's fantastic. Uh, we're owned by a large yep, public is. held company, and one of the things that we do, we also have radio stations. And uh, the website was designed by a, a, a division of a radio company called Pikewood Creative, and the artwork and the video work is tremendous. So it's pikewoodnational.com, and uh, it's a tremendous place, Chris.
2: And Bob, remind our listeners about your radio show and how they can find it to listen in.
1: Yes, my radio show will start the Monday after the Masters and run through the third week in August. It's called Tea to Green, and we stream it live on wvmetronews.com Monday nights from eight o'clock until um, from seven o'clock until eight o'clock each Monday night from the middle of April till the middle of the, the third week in August Monday nights. 7 o'clock Eastern Time. We stream it live on wvmetronews.com. It's called Tee Green. We get a lot of great guests. We get David Toms. We've got Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Dal Finsterwald, Davis Love, Tom Lehman, et al. So we get a lot of a uh, lot of great players joining us on the show, and uh, this year's going to be a great season for us.
2: There you go. And remind our listeners how they can follow you over social media as well, Bob.
1: I am at BobFriend underscore golf on Twitter, and occasion we'll come out there and uh, we'll send 140 characters or less. We'll prattle <laughs> on about the game of golf.
2: There you go. Bob, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to come back and be a part of the show. I always love the opportunity to get to talk to you. Best of luck this season, and I hope, uh, hope we get the opportunity to catch up with you again sometime real soon.
1: Well, Chris, it's a pleasure being on Armed Forces Radio, and like you, I cannot thank our men and our women that serve and have served in our in our armed forces. You protect our, our freedoms and our liberties, and it's the bravest job and most selfless job in the world. So thank all of you that are listening, and uh, God bless.
2: Absolutely right. Bob, thanks again for being here. All the best to you and your father and the rest of your family. Thank you very much, and like I say, I look forward to the opportunity, hopefully catching up with you again real soon.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. God bless. Have a great weekend.
2: All right. You too, Bob. Best of luck. That is Bob Friend Jr. and I'm telling you folks, you, you want to talk about a guy who's gotten so much out of his golf game. It it, it does my heart good to know that uh, Bob and I are roughly the same size. But you know, it's amazing to me. The guy's averaging, you know, at times over 300 yards off the tee, and uh, he has done. He certainly you know, ended last season on a on a very high note, and I'm hoping he's able to carry that forward for the rest of this golf season and on the Champions Tour. Be, be looking for him, Bob Friend Jr. All right, we've got our next guest, Peter Kessler, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Peter on the other side of this station identification.
0: You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, heard around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network.
2: All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort line is uh, the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. There is no one. I admire and respect more that's uh, associated with the game of golf and broadcasting in general than Peter Kessler. Peter has interviewed almost every major golf figure of the 20th and 21st centuries. In the early to mid-90s, he was the voice of HBO Sports. He moved on to become the primary broadcasting talent when the Golf Channel launched back in January of 1995 hosted his own show on SiriusXM's PGA channel. You can stream or download many of the outstanding interviews that Peter did with the legends of the game of golf by checking it out on uh, iTunes, the Peter Kessler Show. If you also love the game of baseball and you're a big fan of the HBO documentary When It Was a Game Like I Am, the magical voice that you hear uh, narrating that show is Peter Kessler's. And when I say this, folks, I mean it absolutely sincerely. When you talk about the great interviewers or the great show hosts of all time, no one has ever done it better than Peter
3: Kessler. Good morning, Peter. How are you, my friend? Uh, it's great to be with you. It's really, It was really nice hearing Bob's story. It's funny how many guys like that, who you don't hear about regularly, are able to make their life work, both working at home and getting their hands in on the tour money from time to time and how good you have to play just to be able to make a few bucks. That was an inspiring story. Wow, thank you for saying that. And Peter...
2: I want to start off our time this morning really just you know, focused on the you know, the broadcast media and radio. I read an article that, Mag, that Golf Magazine did on you a while back, and in it you were quoted as saying, I did about 1,300 live shows on the Golf Channel and 1,700 on Sirius XM. It took me about 13 seconds to make friends with being on television. It took me about 1,300 shows to figure out radio. Why? Why was it difficult for you to figure out radio?
3: I think it's because you're essentially alone. You know, when you do television, you've got a a guest with you, you've got people running the cameras, you've got a makeup person, you've got people who are relying on you, and it, it builds up the pressure, and it's a nice kind of a pressure for the right sort of temperament. And I used to really like that pressure, and I used to like having somebody sitting next to me and look into somebody else's eyes and not have to wonder about their body language like you do when you do radio. And I remember that the first time that I did a show at the Golf Channel, which was January 17th of 95, it was interviewing Arnold Palmer, and it was the first show of the Golf Channel. And The lights came on, and I introduced myself, and I started to introduce Arnold. And I hadn't even gotten to going to say his name yet and I realized that I was going to be completely comfortable just just in those few seconds and it turned out that I was completely comfortable and that stayed with me for as long as I did television but radio took me ages to get comfortable with you know you're sitting in your studio with an acoustic partition and you can't see anybody and you don't know if your guest is looking up stuff on Google or whether he's really paying attention um, has he finished speaking or is he merely taking a breath? Is he enjoying the interview because I can't see his face so I can't really tell for sure? So there's there's so many question marks when you do radio and you're having to you know, just for example, if you and I talked on the phone every day, at one point we would speak at the same time, and it's really important in radio to not step on the other person. So you as the host and you know this as well or better than I do You're waiting to make sure the guest is finished as opposed to taking a breath and going on. You've got to listen very, very hard. We're on television. You can just look at the person and listen less hard because you can see body language and facial expressions and tone of voice and put it all together. Radio, you're working harder. So, yeah, I found it a a very difficult transition, and I have a lot of respect for guys like you who make it sound so comfortable and easy.
2: I appreciate you saying that. Uh, Peter, through the course of the thousands of interviews you've done, anyone ever throw you a curveball that really caught you off guard?
3: Uh, Not really. I mean, I tried to know the answer to all the questions before I asked the questions so that you're never surprised and never get taken somewhere where you're not prepared to be taken. So I tried to really have a good feel for what, the guest was going to say and how long he or she was going to take to say it so that I could build a one-hour show and get in all my questions and still get in all the answers and not have to get rid of some of my questions or add questions as the show went on to really try to get the timing of it as perfect as could perfect be. And no, I I don't think anybody ever threw me a curve. Now, there were some, some interesting moments. I mean, I... I uh, I guess unexpected answers certainly came from Gene Sarazen, who was 95 at the time I interviewed him in 1997. And according to his family, it was one of the best memory nights that he had had in a couple of decades, and he remembered everything I could have possibly brought up. And he told me a story that I didn't know, that in the 1920s, when he lived 40 miles north of New York City and would take the train into town, that there was one stop at Pelham where if he arrived at the right time, the Ziegfeld Volley Volley's Showgirls were getting on the train <laughs> to, to go into New York for their daily rehearsal and show. And he said there was this blonde that he used to flirt with on the train tracks, but she wouldn't give him a tumble, as he put it. And he said 60 years went by, 1985, he's at uh, a golf tournament in California, someone comes up to him and says, a woman wants to see you, and he says, what would a woman want with an old man like me, and he goes over, and a blonde woman says, do you remember me, and he said, I looked her over, and I didn't remember her, and she said, well, I'm the blonde you used to flirt with on the train tracks in 1925, and she said, and I'd just like to introduce myself, my name is Mrs. Bob Hope. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: and he wow. did that for an he did that for an hour. At the end of the show, it was funny. It was one of the two or three shows that we actually taped. This one was north of Atlanta at Chateau Alon, uh, a, a resort and golf course that he had a relationship with. And normally, for a show, over the course of a week prior to a show, I would probably have five or six pages of legal pad with notes on it, and I would cull it down to a single sheet by showtime and just stick it in my pocket and refer to it at a break if I needed to. Well, for some reason, I had the entire Sarazin show with me up there, and so it was like five pages of notes, and we were were in the last commercial break, and I pulled out my notes to see if there was anything I'd forgotten or anything I wanted to do that I still had time for, And then the cameraman says, you've got 10 seconds, Peter. And I couldn't get the papers back in my pocket. They wouldn't go in. I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I'm crushing it and it won't go in. And Sarazen starts to laugh. And finally I took the whole thing and wanted it into a ball and threw it over the top of the camera. And we came back and Sarazen had his head back and was still laughing. And we had a really nice light and, uh, carefree kind of final segment without diluting the material at all. It was just a perfect wind-up to have it turn out to be friendly at the end and with laughter. So he was an unexpected treat. Um, I had some shows where some people gave me incredibly short answers, a lot of yes and no stuff, and I actually had somebody once nod an answer to me. So that was difficult. (laughs) But normally... I, you know, and you know this just as well as I do. Normally when you're getting ready to host somebody, you do as much homework as you can on that person to try to get a good feel and come up with the questions that you know that person will do a good job on and give you the length answers that you're kind of anticipating so that you don't have too few questions to go around for the for the guests' time on your show.
2: And Peter, tell me about the time you were interviewing Tommy Bolt at the 2005 U.S. Open at Pinehurst. You asked him about, you know, Ben Hogan, because Hogan had won his first golf tournament there. Tell me about what that uh, interview, how that interview transpired.
3: I can't repeat anything that happened in a Tommy Bolt interview. The language (laughs) was so unbelievable. I mean, you know, I used to ask him questions like, you know, why was... Hogan's such a long hitter if he wasn't a big guy and he didn't have a lot of muscles and he didn't work out a lot and he had the bad leg and all this other stuff and he would say that blankety blank would whip that club through there so blankety blank that you couldn't blankety blank believe, I mean it was the whole (laughs) thing and it was as bad as you could possibly imagine so he didn't tell me many stories that were repeatable but I'll tell you what he was one of the joys of my life. I played a lot of golf with him when he was ninety, for some reason. that was a year that I played a bunch with him and at the age of ninety, he could still hit at two fifty five two sixty and wow. his hands his hands did not go above well, certainly didn't get as high as his chest somewhere between his belt buckle and his chest was as high as he could get his hands. But every shot was in the exact middle of the club face. You could look at his driver after three weeks, and it would have one mark on it. It was the most amazing thing, and he never missed greens, ever, ever, ever. I'll bet I didn't see him hit three bunker shots, in all the time I played golf with him, and I played a lot of rounds with him. And if he would miss a green, he would pretend that he never had a chip like that one before, I mean, it could be a 20-foot straight chip off of a good lie going slightly uphill, no break, no nothing, just straightforward. And he would take a look at it, and he would mourn woefully, and he would say, man, I've never had a shot like this. And then he would chip it in. He'd go, boy, that was a tough one. And uh, he was great to play with. I saw him shoot 69 from the members tees when he was ninety. And the last time that he played, to my knowledge, was with me. We played the short course out at Black Diamond in western uh, Florida. And uh, we came to the last hole, which was a par three. And he was a genius with the five wood. He could hit it anywhere from, say, 160 to maybe 205, 210 even. And he could do anything you wanted him to do with that golf club. He could hit it straight up in the air and have it come straight down with no forward motion. He could cut it, he could draw it, he could slice it, he could hook it. He could hit these huge high shots that drew or faded just a couple of feet and would sit down. He could get to back pins running it along the front of the green. And on this occasion, he just hit a typically terrific five-wood about 25 feet from the hole and rolled in the putt for a two. And he said, boy... He said, "That's it for old dad. I'm glad you got to see it, and that was the last <laughs> time. That was the last time I saw him, and it was the last time I saw him play. And right after that, his wife took him to some reservation or somewhere up in Arkansas where he still had relatives from when he was a little boy up there. And, uh, and he passed away about eighteen months later. I don't know that he played any golf up there or what he was up to, but you know he had a he had a routine at black diamond golf club where he lived, where he would have soup at home. He had some digestive digestion problems. He'd have soup at home and he'd come to the course and he'd be all in purple and white, you know, with a great white cap and purple socks and white shoes. I mean, he was just, he was great, looked great in clothes. And, um, and he would come out and play his round and then, uh, come in afterwards and ask for, uh, what was his drink? A uh, a Pinot Noir and uh, or a Cabernet Sauvignon, he would call it. And he would have a drink, and then you know he would he would get in his Cadillac, and he would drive the two minutes to his house, and you'd see him the next day or whenever he went up again. But they loved him there. We used to have a surprise birthday party for him every year that he knew was going to be the birthday party for him every year, and he'd walk in all decked out and greeting people and then he'd walk right to the front of the room and we'd have two chairs set up and do an interview and he just told great stories and he made half of them up i mean he used to tell the story (laughs) about he did he used to tell the story about when he was when hogan taught him to move his left hand more on top of the club and make it into a more neutral rather than strong position that hogan used to hide behind trees and watch him play well how could you see anything you're going to see the guy's grip hiding behind a tree. So he used to make up crazy stories like that. But, um, you know, how he taught Arnold to throw clubs in the direction of the green, so you could pick them up as you were walking. So you never had to go backwards or go into the woods to get them. And, um, I'm not sure that that's true either, but it just made him more colorful. And, you know, he said he never threw a club. He only tossed them, which was completely different. <laughs> Peter, tell
2: me about the 2002 Masters and the response that you received from fans following uh, your exit from the Golf Channel. Uh,
3: Well, that was really nice. Um, Actually, the 2002 Masters was uh, just a couple of weeks after Bobby Jones' 100th birthday, which fell on March 17th of uh, 2002. And I got invited to host his centennial birthday celebration on his birthday a couple of weeks before the Masters. And so they asked me what my fee was. And before I could get out a word, they said, you know, we could always have you play, uh. And I went, yeah, that's what I want to do, uh, Augusta National. And so I played the big course and the little course on March 16th of 2002 and it was an incredible experience it's really hard i don't know how the members played it's a really hard golf course those greens are insane they have little tongues and little plateaus and things that are almost coffin shaped where you have to leave your ball on top of the coffin or else it's going to fall off and run forever i mean really really difficult greens i mean they look really difficult on tv but they're more difficult in person the the break is unbelievable. If your ball's in the wrong place on the green, and usually their ball is on the right place on the green, you just have an impossible, impossible putt with too much break and too much slope, you know, and just too much for anybody to be able to get a a sensible stroke on. So it's amazing how well these guys play it. But I was struck by the difficulty of the greens, and the par-3 course was, was so great that you could never play golf anywhere else other than there and still have a very rich and full golf life and just, incredible short course and the food was great and the dinner the next night was really successful and a lot of fun and uh there was uh nobody in that room who didn't either know jones or have a relationship with him it was only people who knew jones and his entire extended family and I thought as the host I should tell them a Bobby Jones story, but any story that I knew except for one, which I did tell, every somebody in that room was going to know the story. So I just told the one about how 25 years earlier I had gotten into bed at home and it just turned midnight. And I turned to my wife and said, uh, uh, good night, sweetheart. And she said, we're going to have the baby tonight. And I said, we're going to have the baby tonight. And I said, Wow, I said, it just turned March 17th. That's Bobby Jones' birthday. And she looked at me and she said, it's my birthday, too. (laughs) So that's a true story. And uh, she eventually started to speak to me again. But, yeah, I said to her, it's Bobby Jones' birthday. And she said, it's my birthday, too. And I knew nobody in the room could know that story. So that's the one that I told. And, you know, it's it's interesting to me because I
2: was – I ask you why you know what what the reception you got from the fans is because um like I say it was not that long after you know you left the golf channel and um they really embraced you there and and I, I read in, in in the article again on in uh, in Golf uh Golf magazine that um it it made you cry
3: because of the appreciation that they showed to you.
2: Do you remember that?
3: I sort of remember I mean people were really, really nice. I had just gotten fired from the Golf Channel a couple of months before I thought unfairly at the time, I still think unfairly now, and uh yeah, people were tri- people were always terrific to me uh when i went, when I showed up somewhere in public. the people who watched the Golf Channel were very appreciative of the work and uh really seemed to like it a lot and I was always touched i mean if i uh had tears in my eyes that year. I, You know, I, I certainly believe that because I frequently uh, would get filled up when somebody said that they had enjoyed some time spent, you know, with me watching my shows. And that was the highest flattery that they'd actually take time out of their day and watch something that I was doing um, because it might bring them some pleasure. And, and apparently it bought a number of people some reasonable pleasure and so, yeah, I was always and remain grateful to I mean people still recognize me. I, I you know, remain very appreciative of the fact that people like the work. It's uh that's the bit about it that's great is that they like the work.
2: Yeah, and and Peter, like I say in your, in your introductions and I've said it many times on this show and elsewhere, you know, making the turn with Peter Kessler and all the shows that you've done are simply outstanding. I mean, and I mean this, you you're, you're the greatest interviewer in the history of the game of golf, and maybe in all of sports, why is, why is making the turn not on on the air anymore? Why don't we see you every week?
3: Well, I did the show on Sirius XM for ten years, and we used to have like you do. We used to book a few guests, you know, the best and most eclectic guests that we could organize. And I had a great producer who did that. And but then they wanted to. Uh, change the show to only taking phone calls and not having golf's brightest people on the show and i tried that for a little while but you didn't get a good general broad section of the golf playing public it was because of the time of day i suppose it was always guys in a truck you know, I'm out on Route 95. I'm out on Route I4, and it's fine to take a certain number of those. But they be- the show became largely those calls, and there would be interference, and there would be noises, and you would have trouble hearing guys sometimes, and there would be horns blowing or trains going by, and it was a difficult it was a difficult experience. And I told them that I wanted to uh, have guests on again. And they said no, we don't want guests. We just want you to take phone calls. And so we sort of went back and forth. And after ten years, I thought, well, maybe I've had enough. And um, so it just we just sort of ended up agreeing that uh, the new format wasn't making sense, and that they were going to try to do something new anyway, and uh, fill it up with with instruction largely, you know. So they got Annika and Larry Rinker and Hank Haney and a few other guys to basically do instruction. We used to do a lot of it on our show. Um, but then they went to shows that did it full time. I could have hosted a show like that. That would have been cool. But they started having those people who host their own show. You know, like Ledbetter is his own host and Hank Haney is his own host. So there became fewer opportunities there because of that and fewer opportunities because of the taking the call thing. So it just ended the way that it did. But it was it was fun. It was a fun show. Um, again, it took me a long time to get really comfortable with the process, but once I did, um, I relaxed a lot more and had a, a much better time with it. And I was sorry that that ended. That was uh, that was a lot of fun.
2: But with so many sports outlets today, and the advent of ESPN Classic and and things of that nature, having the the guests, and even the shows you've already done. It seems like a natural to me that, you know, that those would get picked up or placed on, you know, a uh an outlet like that. Why why haven't uh, other folks come calling because like I say it's it's all fantastic stuff.
3: Uh I'm not sure of that. Um if you know some people who were looking for somebody like me, please give them my number. But uh <laughs> no, it's hard because nobody has clamored for short or long form golf interviews, which is what I'm best at. I could do other sports. I could do baseball. I could do tennis. I could probably do basketball. I might be able to do football, but I wouldn't be as good as I am at golf because I know golf pretty well. The other sports I know well, but golf I know better. Um, so, you know, when I left the Golf Channel, there wasn't a lot of need for golf shows on other channels. They just weren't doing it. NBC would occasionally, you know, show a documentary from one to two on a Sunday afternoon before the coverage of the U.S. Open or something like that, but it wasn't something that they did regularly, and it wasn't something that they had a very big appetite for, so, you know, I was sort of stuck in that I wasn't able to do those shows because nobody really had a need for them, and I understood that. So it remains tricky in that sense because while there's still a lot of sports outlets, there's not a lot of places where there are golf shows that you can go watch. You can watch golf tips. But in terms of sit-down interview shows, there's very little, if any at all, out there anywhere.
2: I'm talking with uh, the voice of golf, Peter Kessler, here on Next on the Tee. Peter, a couple more before we let you go. I wanted to get your thoughts on the uh, on the golf Hall of Fame. It's starting to feel to me like it's becoming the golf of the or the hall of the pretty good, because they
3: feel like they need to induct someone every year. How do you feel about the Hall of Fame? Well, I feel about it like you do, and how other you know reasonably informed people around the game of golf feel. I mean, you know, Mark O'Meara getting in with 16 wins and two majors was. You know, four wins short, Freddie Couples getting in at 15 wins in one major. I mean, that's the most amazing stat to me is in 30 years, in 30 years, he won 15 times and won one major. I mean, he should have had a Vijay Singh-like career with three or four majors and 40-some-odd wins or a Phil Mickelson career with 40-some-odd wins and five major championships. I mean, Freddie should have had a real, you know, super career and, Given the quality of his golf striking, it was woefully underperformed. And even now, I mean, I remember as soon as Zach Johnson won the Open at the Old Course last year to go along with the Masters victory for a total of 12 victories over his career. Ron Witten of Golf Digest wrote, Welcome to the Hall of Fame. And I'm going, it's not a Hall of Fame just because you won at the Old Course and the Masters. You have to do more than that. I would make the very minimum 20, 20 tournaments plus two majors is the very minimum that you should win. And that would leave off Crenshaw, and that would leave off Kite, and it would just get Greg Norman in, and it would have left off Freddie, and it would have left off a lot of guys with numbers in their teens that just don't make any sense. But, you know, they have an award ceremony every year, so they need to award someone. But even this business of the LPGA, the standards for the World Golf Hall of Fame are lower than they are for the LPGA Hall of Fame. You would think it would be the other way around, that the World Golf Hall of Fame would be tougher to get into. But you've got people like uh, Dottie Pepper, Laura Davies getting into the World Golf Hall of Fame where they're not getting into the LPGA Hall of Fame. So I agree it's, be- it's become the hall of the of the pretty good as opposed to the greatest players of all time, Freddie Couples and Mark Mirra, are not a trip down history lane. Sorry.
2: You once asked Greg Norman to step outside himself and kind of look back at himself objectively and answer the question, how many majors should Greg Norman have won? And after saying that no one had ever asked him the question quite like that, kudos to you. Let me turn the question back to you. How many majors do you think Greg Norman should have won,
3: and does he fit you know, in the Hall of Fame? He should have won eight to ten major championships. I mean, he, along with Craig Wood, is the only guy to lose all four majors in a playoff, and that's not easy to do. And so many others, you know, slipped away. The Bob Tway, the Larry Mize. I mean, just, you know, then Tway was in regulation, so that's not even one of the misses in uh, in, over- in playoff overtime. Yeah, I mean, he, it's the same answer he gave me. He said eight to ten. And I agree with him, 8 to 10 would have been the right number. I mean, he was the longest, straightest driver of a golf ball on tour for 15, 17 years. Everybody acknowledged it. And he was a great putter from 15 feet, which is roughly the distance that guys are trying to hit their shots with irons from the fairway if they can get, you know, within 15 to 25 feet on an average shot with anything other than a pitching club. They consider that a good shot, and that was a distance like Jordan Spieth's today putts from that distance that greg was exceptionally good at so if you drive it that long and straight and you putt that good you know you should be winning a lot lot more tournaments than you did i mean he won you know 20 in the united states and you know and he only won two majors which is really hard to believe and i make 20 and two the minimum that you get in the world golf hall of fame so i would say yes he gets in the world golf hall of fame but at the lowest possible rung on the ladder and uh, is somebody who got less out of his game, perhaps, than any other terrific player. You can't put him in the great category. You can put him in the very good category because he lost too many tournaments. He gave away too many tournaments. He didn't close enough tournaments. He didn't win enough majors. Here's another guy should have had 45 or 50 wins in five to ten major championships. No problem. No problem at all. But he didn't.
2: One more before I let you go, Peter. I'm just curious. You've, you, Like I say, you've done so many interviews. Most fun you ever had doing an interview?
3: Uh, well, that Sarazen interview was, was a lot of fun. I mean, anything with Arnold was a lot of fun. Uh, anything with Gary Player and Arnold at the same time was a lot of fun, and Gary would always accuse Arnold of being somewhere in the world where the two of them were playing an exhibition and that Arnold would pass gas while he was getting ready to hit a putt, and that <laughs> Gary would Gary would call him on it, and a member of the gallery said, I saw you do it. And uh, Arnold used to get very upset about that particular story that happened in Japan, and Gary Player said, birds do it, bees do it, human beings do it, and you could see Arnold's face getting completely red because he'd heard Gary tell that story before and he knew exactly where he was going, and he wasn't happy about it. So those were always fun interviews. Gary Player was a great interview. He would he would kick balls. He would pump his knees. He would lift things up and look like he was exercising. I mean, he was always a great deal of fun. I enjoyed, you know, all of them, really. I, I was pretty lucky. I I was able to get guys to relax who weren't otherwise going to relax. I was able to get good stuff out of good people. I was able to get great stuff out of great people. So um most of them went pretty much according to what i expected byron nelson was a great interview remembered everything that always happ- happened to him jarmy bulla who used to hang out with sam sneed at the beginning of their time on tour in the 1930s was a great interview he used to fly bobby jones around during world war 2 and would we'll talk about the bobby jones that really was not just a american idol Um, so yeah, so that was, uh, that was great fun and every once in a while I still get to do a print interview for somebody and, uh, they're still great to do. So I'm envious of your, uh, of your ability to be able to do this a few times a week and get people on the phone and talk to them about what they were good at or what they think about things.
2: I appreciate you saying that. Peter, before we let you go, for for golf fans like me, there isn't a better way to spend a Saturday morning than getting to listen to you share your stories and your insights and the experiences that you had. I I can't thank you enough for continuing to do it and be a part of the show. Remind our listeners how they can find your shows and the the interviews that you've done.
3: Uh, You can go on iTunes. There's the Peter Kessler Show, which is the audio of a number of shows that I've done over the years. I haven't written anything for a while, so and I do tweet at Peter Kessler uh when I find something you know that I think is really interesting to say. There's a lot of tweeting going on there that's that's missable. Um so yeah, so that's where I can be found right at this moment. And I'm working on a couple of things. There's a couple of potential shows that I might do for an all online sports network. Uh, that I'm in talks with. Hopefully, Monday things will progress further, and I'll keep you posted if that works out. Uh, yes. And they can, of course, hear me on your show. Peter, you, you
2: are truly the greatest interviewer and storyteller that's uh, that's on the planet. I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of today's show. I hope you'll continue to join me from time to time because uh, I, I just get a kick, so, such a kick out of having you uh, share all the wonderful experiences that you've had over the course of your career.
3: When you're ready, I'm ready, partner. I really appreciate being on the show. I appreciate your good questions. I appreciate that this is for the armed forces. It's all really cool stuff. Thank you Peter. All the best
2: to you and your family my friend. I hope I hope to get that update very soon about uh where you're going to be and where our listeners can continue to hear you do the great stuff that you've done. Please share that Thanks, with buddy. us uh when the
3: time's right. Thanks. Great to be with you, Chris. All right, take care, Peter.
2: That is Peter Kessler and and folks I'm not exaggerating. I'm not just saying it because Peter was a part of the show today. And I've had the extreme pleasure the last several years of uh, co-hosting this show with Peter. And uh, as we do a master's preview special with, uh, with Gary Player. It, uh, it, you know, radio doesn't get any better than the opportunity to sit back and listen to Peter uh, talk to Gary Player, and it, the privilege doesn't get any higher than uh, having the, the person that you consider to be the greatest interviewer of all time listening to and talking with a guy who's the, one of the greatest players and the history of the game of golf. So that's, that's the highest honor that I get to have is, is to be, you know, just a small part of an opportunity to listen and be a part of a show with, with those two guys. But I can't thank Peter enough. Hopefully we hear some great things about what Peter is going to be doing uh, very near in the very near future. So I'll keep you up to date as I hear uh, back from Peter. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode. before we close up shop, I want to remind you about uh, our friends and our new partner, PGA Tour Pro, Jim Estes, and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Let's, uh, Let's hear a word about the great things that they are doing over there.
4: The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Yeah,
2: they're doing some amazing things there at the uh, Salute Military Golf Association. To find out more information and how you can get involved, check out smga.org. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks again to Bob Friend Jr. and Peter Kessler for joining me today and making today's show so much fun for me to be a part of. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazare and our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear it on Blog Talk Radio, the Armed Forces Radio Network, plus great places like iHeartRadio, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, Player.fm. We're all over the net. That show, we uh, talk to legends uh, from around the NFL and the CFL every single week. We typically have five to seven current or former NFL or CFL players join us. Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like, that's important to us as well. You can find this show next on the T dot net and Thursday dot com. Check out our own sites there. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free, folks, plus keep up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be. I can't thank you enough for choosing to listen. To next on the tee again today i really appreciate it we appreciate you guys the very most along with our brave military men and women serving across the world thank you for what you do until next week
3: hit them straight my friends
4: you've been listening to next on the tee with chris mascaro where pga and lpga legends pros and top instructors media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.
1: are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better, like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound, and for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only 4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices.
0: Safeway, it's just better. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing.
4: I got me out, and I sound like a robot.
0: But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, a keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy Applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah.
3: At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink, not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.